invite you to turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 2. Our scripture text today is Mark, chapter 2, the first 17 verses. Before we get there, I want to ask two questions. Uh, these, these two questions emerge from the Gospels in general, and they emerge from these chapters in Mark in particular, and I'm guessing some of you have asked these questions in the past, and perhaps some of you are asking them uh, this very day. Question number one is this, uh, what is the purpose of Christ's miracles of healing? Uh, thus far, we've seen that Christ, Mark states it, Christ has healed various diseases. Uh, we've seen two specific examples so far. Uh, he healed a woman of fever. He healed a man of leprosy. Uh, the question is this, what purpose do these miracles serve? Uh, we know, Mark tells us, that the Lord Jesus comes out, his public ministry that is, he comes out principally, primarily to preach the gospel. So why bother with miracles? Uh, he's a preacher of good news. He's a preacher of salvation. He's, he's hurling headlong to the cross, and so why bother to pause along the way to heal? Uh, what is the purpose behind uh, these incidents of physical healing? The purpose is fourfold. Let me give them to you quickly. Purpose number one, these miracles reveal that Christ is the Son of God. That's how Mark begins the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You don't believe me? It was announced by the Baptist. It was confirmed by the Father. It was tested by the devil. And on top of that, look at what the Lord Jesus did. Look at the miracles he performed. Look at his acts of physical healing. Who else can rebuke fevers, stop hemorrhages, cleanse leprosy, restore sight, and heal paralysis? Christ is the Son of God. His miracles of healing confirm Purpose number two, they reveal that God's kingdom has come. And so back in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, as the Lord Jesus embarks on his ministry in that region known as Galilee, he goes forth to preach the gospel. And he declares the time is fulfilled. The kingdom has come. He has been anointed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has anointed him to fulfill his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. The Spirit has anointed him to fulfill his, his mission, his purpose, to give his life, lay down his life for his people, his flock, his church. Well, the Spirit's power, as made evident in Christ's miracles, primarily these incidents of physical healing, testify to the fact that the kingdom has come. The new age has dawned. Purpose number three, Christ's miracles of healing reveal what transpires at the cross. And so Thomas Manton wrote centuries ago, this action of Christ taking away disease is a type of his taking away sin. Understand, friend, disease is to the body what sin is to the soul. And as physical disease corrupts, pollutes, and ultimately destroys the body, so too sin corrupts, pollutes, distorts, disfigures, and ultimately destroys the soul. And so the Lord Jesus performs these, these acts of physical healing to point to a far greater healing, friend. Do not get lost in the story of the leper. Do not get lost in today's text, what we're going to see in the story of the paralytic. The, the physical healing is never what should be primarily in view. The, 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 these diseases point to a far greater disease, sin. They therefore point to a far greater need, spiritual healing. And as we read way back in Isaiah chapter 53, he was bruised by his stripes. We are healed. It is a spiritual healing. It is the Lord Jesus at Calvary's cross dealing with the ultimate disease, spiritual disease, known as sin. Purpose number four is this. Christ's miracles of physical healing reveal that he abounds in compassion. He abounds compassion. As he encounters this man, this woman, as he encounters people, individuals like you and me, 
He, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He, the creator of each and every one of us. He finds them living under the consequences of the fall. And he is moved to pity. He is moved to compassion as he considers the damage, the havoc, the the, the destruction that sin has caused, the fall has caused, the curse has called. And so he heals as a manifestation of his compassion. So there's the answer to question number one. What is the purpose of Christ's miracles of physical healing? Now, question number two is this, and it builds on the first. Should we, you and me, expect Christ to grant us physical healing? That's a good one. That's a good one. Should we expect Christ to grant us physical healing? After all, you read Mark, you read Matthew, Luke, John, He's healing people right, left, and center. They're coming to him in droves, flocking to him, multitudes, and he's healing them. Uh, I understand now the fourfold purpose of his healing. And now here's the burning question. Uh, God forbid I contract some debilitating uh, chronic disease. Uh, if, If I were to contract that kind of disease, should I expect God to heal me? Now, let's tread softly and carefully here. To answer that question, we must understand two truths. Must understand these two truths. And in your bulletin, you're going to find an insert. uh, It's sermon notes. It's a little insert. There's a freestanding piece of paper. And at the top of that little piece of paper, you'll see a title, Judicial Authority. Underneath uh, the the text, Mark chapter 2, the first 17 verses, And then you're going to see a diagram I belabored over this past week, and I hope you like it, and I hope it's of some use. If not, just ignore it. But we need need to understand two truths, and and I hope that diagram, some of us are very visual, and so uh, there's no whiteboard to work with here, but there's a diagram before you, and I hope this will help us understand these two truths. Uh, The first is this, friends. There are two ages. The the Bible makes it clear. The Bible speaks of only two ages. Uh, There is what's called the present age in Scripture, and there is what is called the age to come. Simple enough, clear enough, everyone's still with me? There are only two ages. There is the present age, and there is the age to come. The present age began when? Let's imagine that wall way over there is creation. So there we have the beginning of time. That's when the present age began. Uh, Creation, original creation, heavens and the earth and humanity, with Adam and Eve constituted the head of creation. Adam falls plunges humanity, all of his descendants, into sin. The creation is brought under a curse. And ever since then, creation has groaned, groans of futility under the curse. And ever since then, humanity has lived with the results, the consequences of the fall. The present age, beginning back at creation, the present age continues until, come all the way forward now, continues until Christ's, Now mark this, be careful. Second coming. You might have expected me to say his first coming. No. The present age, and scripture makes it clear, continues, began at creation. Creation has fallen under the curse. Man lives with the consequences and the results of the curse. And that present age continues until Christ's right here, the right-hand side of the pulpit where you're looking from, right here, Christ's second coming. Now there is in scripture the age to come. So we now know what the present age is. The age to come, when does it begin? Not at Christ's second coming. It began at Christ's first coming. And it continues until when? Into eternity. And what is it? It is a new creation. It is a new heavens and earth. It is Christ standing as the head of a new, renewed, perfect creation. It is the removal of The curse. So you have the present age from creation to Christ's second coming. You have the future age, Christ's first coming into eternity. Are you still there? Do you know what that means? That means that right now we live in a period of overlap, don't we? We live in what? Two ages. The present age and the age to come. And because we live in two ages, guess what we live with? Tension. We live with the tension 
of still living in a world that is under the curse. We still live with the tension of living in a world that feels, and we feel it every day of our lives, the consequences of the fall. And yet at the same time, we know that the Lord Jesus, by virtue of his death, his burial, his resurrection, has established a new heavens and the earth. The problem is he's only inaugurated his kingdom. He will not consummate his kingdom until his second return. And now here we are, as the Puritans described it, wayfaring and warfaring. That's our experience. We live with the tension of being in two ages. I hope the diagram helped. If not, maybe my arms flailing around up here helped. You got that, two ages. The second truth we must understand is this. Because we live in this, this, this period here known as the last days, that's what scripture calls it, the last days, between Christ's first coming and his second coming, the overlap of these two ages, the present age and the age to come, because we live in these last days, there are actually two realities to salvation. This is pivotal. Two realities to salvation. To put it bluntly, I stand before you saved, right? But guess what? I'm not yet saved. There's a lot more coming. I stand before you redeemed. But guess what? I'm not yet redeemed. There's a lot more coming, praise God. I stand before you adopted. I stand before you as a son of God. This is not the complete picture, brothers and sisters. I am awaiting adoption. I am part of a kingdom inaugurated, but I am looking to a kingdom consummated. I am part of the last days, and I've been given the promise of a glorious, blessed inheritance. But guess what? It is all future. And I am waiting for, and by the eyes of faith, I am fixed on what is coming. And I understand that that future glory far surpasses present affliction. But here's the reality of my experience. I live with this tension. And in an essence, I'm only partly saved. Because I live in an age of partial fulfillment, but not complete fulfillment. Do you know what that means? This might surprise you. It might shock some of you. I still sin. A lot. If you believe in sinless perfection, I say this lovingly. It might sound harsh, but I say this lovingly, but I want to be direct. You're semi-delusional. There is no, friend, sinless perfection in this life. Sinless perfection is the promise, yet future. I still struggle with sin every day of my life. Uh, Christ has paid the penalty for my sin. Christ has removed the judgment that I deserve. But he has not yet removed sin from me. That's yet future. Uh, Guess what? I still struggle with Satan. Satan is a defeated enemy. But Satan has not yet been moved out of the way. That awaits something yet future. Guess what? I still struggle with affliction. Even though God is my God and the Lord Jesus is my shepherd, I still live in a world under the effects of the fall. Creation awaits. Creation is groaning in anticipation for the full revelation of the sons of God. Until then it groans and we feel and we live with the effects of the fall. As a result, we live with affliction. We live in a world that is hostile to us. Well, We know that the Lord Jesus defeated it all at the cross. But he has not yet eradicated it all. It awaits the future. And guess what, friends? I stand before you a man who someday is going to get sick. A man who will contract a disease. And a man who will die. Well, why? If the Lord Jesus has removed the curse at Calvary's cross, why do we still get sick? Why do we still struggle with illness? Why do we still die? Because we are living with the tension of two ages and we are looking forward to the consummation. Are you understanding all of that? Now, a failure to understand this, a failure to understand those two truths, two ages, two realities to our salvation, a failure to grasp this leads to defective teaching which leads invariably to disappointment and disillusionment. And so we hear it. We are bombarded with the message today that right now, sinless perfection is yours. No, it isn't, Christian. It is not. 
we are called to a wayfaring and warfaring life when we deal with sin and we seek to mortify sin on a daily basis. We need to get out into our yards and root out those weeds and pull them up. And the next morning, what do we have to do? Exactly the same thing. And the next morning, what do we have to do? Exactly the same thing. That's the life God has called us to right now at present. And yet there are some who will say, because they suffer from this over-realized eschatology, thinking it's all ours right now. No, it is not, friend. They conclude that boundless prosperity is theirs. No, it isn't. God has not promised to prosper you material, materially. He has not promised to prosper me materially. As a matter of fact, he might afflict us with poverty if he sees fit. There is no promise of abounding in material prosperity. And there are some who would tell us that right now, physical healing is ours. I've heard it. The voices ring clear in my mind. Christian, you have no business being sick. You ever heard that one? I hear it all the time. Against my wife's good advice, I still watch them on the television. Uh, Christian, you have no business being sick. Christ paid it all at the cross. Healing is yours right now. You must have faith. And if you have enough faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, I've never heard it articulated like this, but it's ultimately what it comes down to, is obligated to heal you. Friends, it is defective teaching. As a matter of fact, at times it is borderline heretical teaching, which results in a number of sincere believers suffering with with an unreal understanding of the Christian life and the Christian journey, which ends up in what? Manifests itself in what? All sorts of disillusionment and disappointment. Now hear my words and hear them carefully. I'm going to speak right into the mic here. Can God heal? Yes, amen, hallelujah. Question number two, does God heal? Yes, amen. This is about as excited as I get. Hallelujah. Should we pray for healing? Yes, amen, hallelujah. Christian, should you expect it? Not in the age we live in. Not in the age we live in. God may see fit in accordance with his own wise plans and purposes for us to heal us, but we have no promise in the present age upon which to base that. The promise we can hold on to in the present age is what? That God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so he does not promise to heal us in the present age. He might if he so chooses. He is able. But he does most certainly promise to sustain us and fortify us and keep us in the present age, and see us, whatever transpires in life, whatever comes down the highway, he promises to hold us and keep us and see us safely to our home when we will enter into the full inheritance. We will move beyond his second coming. The present age will pass away. The curse will go with it. And we will enter into an age in which righteousness will dwell. There will be perfect joy, perfect harmony, perfect comfort, perfect peace. There will be perfect health. There will be immortality because there will be no sin. And the lamb, as Samuel Rutherford penned all those centuries ago, the lamb will be all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Those are two questions. I spent much more time on them than I intended to, but I could see from the looks on some of your faces that it was worth doing. That we be realists as Christians, realists about the age in which we live, what God has promised and what God hasn't promised. You know, if you just think about it in the context of last week's sermon, we have a pertinent example of this when the leper comes prostrate at the feet of the Lord Jesus. If you will, You can make me clean. What is the object of the leper's faith? 
It isn't God's will. It isn't Christ's will. He says, if you will. His will is not the object of his faith. You can make me clean. His power is the object of his faith. Similarly, the object of our faith is God's power. It is not God's will to heal us because we do not know the mind of God. Let me state it to you in slightly different terms and then we'll move on. To say that I have faith, that God will heal me, is presumptuous. To say that God is able to heal me is faith. Is faith. And we pray in faith. And even pray for healing at times as the situation arises and calls for it. And yet we echo the words of the leper, do we not? If you will, thy will be done. If you will, you can make me clean. With all that said, we come to our text, Mark chapter 2. Beautiful text. Enter into it as I read it publicly for us. Beginning in verse 1, right through to verse 17. And when he, that is the Lord Jesus, returned to Capernaum, After some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son... Your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but I want to insert there, praise God, sinners, sinners. Now you'll remember, if you were here last Sunday, we were in Mark chapter 1, more or less verse 13, right through to the end. And and I stated that that in that section, the latter half of chapter 1, Mark's purpose is pretty simple. He's trying to give us a feel for Christ's ministry. And so what he does is he, he, he reveals, he puts on display... The three essential components of Christ's ministry. So number one, Christ preaches the gospel, right? As as we might expect. That continues right through to the end of the book. Number two, Christ appoints his disciples. That continues right through to the end of the book as he teaches and instructs them concerning the true nature of discipleship. Number three, Christ manifests his authority. We saw that right near the end of chapter one. The authority in view there is very specific. It is a creational authority. And so Mark hones in on a couple of examples and he shows us that the Lord Jesus has authority to cast out demons. And the Lord Jesus has authority to heal disease as seen in the instance, the particular instance of the leper. And so here we see the authority of the Lord Jesus manifested, his creational authority. Well, in the verses we just read, Mark is still harping on the same theme. He's still giving us a feel for Christ's authority. He shifted gears. The emphasis is no longer Christ's creational authority. It is now what? His judicial authority. That is, his authority to forgive sinners. And his authority to 
call sinners. And we see these two truths manifested in two encounters. So the Lord Jesus gets up close and personal with two men. The first, we have it beginning in verse 1, is a paralytic. The second, we have it beginning in verse 13, is a publican. And in these two encounters, close encounters, between the Lord Jesus and these two individuals, again, Mark is showing us, conveying to us, the unrivaled authority of the Lord Jesus. Now, not so much his creational authority, but his judicial authority. So let's take them in order. Encounter number one, verses 1 through 12, Christ's encounter with a paralytic. I want you to notice two things. First is this, Christ forgives the paralytic. Now you might think to yourself, simple enough, we can move on to number two. Not so, just slow down, slam on the brakes there. This is extremely significant. Uh, Imagine the scene, use your imagination, try to picture it. The Lord Jesus in the city of Capernaum. The Lord Jesus is in a house. What is he doing? He's doing exactly what he came out to do, to preach, to teach the word of God. The house is packed full of people. These four men, as the text tells us, have a friend who's paralyzed, paralytic. They bring him on his bed. They can't get into the house. They can't get through the door. And so they do the next best thing. They climb up on the roof, make an opening, lower the paralytic on the ground before the Lord Jesus. Now, friend, here's the question. Before You know what's coming next because I already read it, but just forget that for a moment. As you just read that, and, and as, you, as you picture them, the, the roof opening up, you're standing there, and down he comes lowered by these ropes, and you can see the other men's faces up there, and there they lay him at the, at the feet of the Lord Jesus, paralyzed for how long? Years since his youth? Now, what kind of life has this man been living? Family life? Vocational? I mean, the suffering, unimaginable. Here's the question, unimaginable. What's the question? What is this man's greatest need? Here's the answer. It isn't his suffering. His greatest need is not to be alleviated of his suffering. His greatest need is not for the Lord Jesus to heal him. And Christ reveals that quite acutely, doesn't he? When he turns to the man and he does not say, get up and walk, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. The Lord Jesus sees beyond his physical paralysis. The Lord Jesus sees beyond his physical suffering. The Lord Jesus sees beyond his his painful condition and assesses his real need. The man above all else, far eclipsing all else. The man needs God. The man's sin stands in the way. Therefore, his greatest need is for what? The Lord Jesus to deal with his sin. My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want to get up close and personal this morning. And I want to speak very personally, very frankly, and, and I pray, I pray with, with compassion. Friend, you may be here this morning... Uh, dealing with a physical illness. Uh, that, is, that, is, that, is, that is terrible. It is. Suffering is terrible. It's a consequence of a fall. But you know, that's not your biggest problem. Your suffering is not your biggest problem. You might be here this morning, your marriage is falling apart. That's terrible. And Christ can put it back together again. But you know what? It's not your biggest problem. You might be here and you're, you're, you're bereaving, you're sorrowing over, over the loss of a loved one. I can empathize. We've all been there. That is painful. But you know what? That isn't our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is this. We ignore God. God is our greatest need. God, all-sufficient, is our greatest joy. And we ignore him. Oh, we fit him in once in a while as we see fit, as it's convenient to us. Hopefully, you know, there's something, something for us in it. And yet, when it's all said and done, essentially we ignore he who is our greatest peace, our greatest love, our greatest joy. It is our sin that stands in the way of our enjoyment of the one who is the greatest good. Therefore, our greatest need 
isn't to be made well. Our greatest need, these are needs, do not misunderstand me. Our greatest need is not for restored marriage. Our greatest need is not for a peaceful home. Our greatest need isn't for employment. These are needs. Yes, these are terrible experiences. Yes, but they do not constitute our greatest, most pressing need, which is to be reconciled to a holy God. To be or not to be. How many of you have heard that phrase before? I'm guessing most of us. Many of us probably have no idea where it came from, though, right? That's a little Shakespeare. That's about all the Shakespeare I know. To be or not to be. be. From Hamlet. We used to have to read uh, back in, in high school. I think it was two books from Shakespeare each year. I don't know if they still make kids do that, but it was slow going. But uh, Hamlet was one that did catch my interest and still to remember some of the narrative. Hamlet, to be or not to be. Why did he utter those words? Because he's considering taking his own life. He's got a dagger in his hand. And he is contemplating killing himself. To be or not to be. A part of Hamlet, he's the prince of Denmark. He, he, he's, he's fallen into a state of despair. And he sees no light at the end of the tunnel. And so he's considering taking his own life because he thinks death will, will kind of be like a sleep. I'll just fall asleep. I'll just fall into an eternal sleep from which I will never awake and all will be restful and I will be free of every burden. I will be free of every care. I will be free of every anxiety. I will be free of my guilty conscience. That's what really troubles Hamlet. I will be free of the pain that I experience over the knowledge of my sin and I have no relief from my sin and from my guilt. To be or not to be, if I were to take my own life, I will simply sleep and I will be free of it all. But then Hamlet adds the following words, to sleep. Oh, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come. And so if death is like sleep, that probably means I'm going to dream. And if I do dream, My dream will be nightmares. They are nightmares now, is Hamlet's perplexity. They are nightmares now as I deal with a sinful and guilty conscience and find no relief. I'll end it all and then it will just enter into rest. But what if I dream? And those dreams are nightmares. And the conscience does not go away. And there is no relief from sin and guilt. You know what he is describing unwittingly? He's describing the very pit of hell. Where the worm is never destroyed. Where conscience goes on for all eternity condemning. And there is never any relief from sin. No relief from rebellion and hatred toward God. No relief from a conscience that is stirred and the overwhelming sense of guilt. Friend, do you understand? You have a problem. And it probably isn't what you perceive it to be this day. We get preoccupied with suffering. My greatest need is to be free of suffering. No, it is not your greatest need. God may perhaps has brought suffering in your life as a clarion call to get your attention. Suffering is not your greatest problem. Relief from suffering is not your greatest need. Falling into the hands of an angry God is your greatest problem. That makes your greatest need forgiveness of sins. The paralytic, he must know it. The text doesn't say it, but reading between the lines, the the, the penny must have dropped in the paralytic's mind is being lowered there. Yes, he wants to be healed physically, but there's a lot more going on there. The Lord Jesus knows it. And the Lord Jesus sees beyond the exterior. The Lord Jesus sees, as only he can, beyond the physical. He sees beyond the suffering. And he looks that man straight in the eyes and he says, My son, your sins are forgiven. Forgiven. And the second thing I want you to notice here, is that Christ confronts the scribes. Who are the scribes? They're the religious elite, religious leaders. That's all we need to know about them for now. Begins in verse 6, goes through to the 12th verse. Uh, They're there. They're pressed together. Remember, the the house is full, shoulder to shoulder. They've kind of cleared a little bit. The paralytic has been been lowered. And there he is before the Lord Jesus. Uh, They hear the Lord Jesus utter those words, My son, your sins are forgiven. And they gasp. And they start to think to themselves, 
Who is this who dares to forgive sin? Who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Because God alone, at least they got this part right, God alone can forgive sin. The Lord Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. He turns to them, he confronts them directly, and he confronts them with a, with a question, a fascinating question, really. I want you to ponder this. I want you to ponder the following. I want, I want an answer to this. Which is easier to say? Okay, I'm going to give you two scenarios. Which is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say uh, rise up and walk? Which is easier? The answer is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? You can't verify it. How do you test that? Your sins are forgiven. Where's the proof? How do we know his sins are forgiven? A man gets up and walk. Well, we can verify that. We can test that. So the Lord Jesus is saying, which is easier? Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to say uh, rise up and walk? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I'm going to now turn to this paralytic and tell him to get up and walk. So that you know there is no doubt you will be left, yes, in the hardness and stubbornness of your heart and the darkness of your mind. But really, I am removing all doubt, all question. There, there, There is nothing to rival what I am about to do. This visible miracle of healing, the reality of it, will testify to the invisible reality of forgiveness of sin. Man, who have just forgiven you your sins, here's what I want you to do now. Get up and walk. And immediately he gets up and he walks. Testifying to what? The visible miracle, the reality of it. Testifying to the reality of it of the invisible miracle that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, has authority to forgive sins. Why does he have authority to forgive sins? The scribes had part of it right. God alone can forgive sins. Use logic here. It's a very simple syllogism. The Lord Jesus heals. God alone forgives sins. God alone can forgive sins. Conclusion? The Lord Jesus is God. Because you see, the man's sins are against Christ, the one who is God. Now, we had the worship team up here earlier, and uh, good friends with Richard. This seems almost inconceivable, but imagine, I guess it could happen, I stomp on Richard's foot. We don't know why, but I do it. Just stomp on his foot someday. Chase, who was on drums, sees it, witnesses it, comes running over and says to me, Stephen, I forgive you for stomping on Richard's foot. How's Richard going to respond? Chase, butt out. It's none of your business. You can't forgive him for something he didn't do to you. He did that to me. Only I can forgive him. Do you understand? We we can only forgive those sins that are committed against us. The Lord Jesus says, I have authority to forgive sins. Why? Because sins are against him. Why? Because he is the living God. And this comes clear in this incident, this encounter between the Lord Jesus Christ And the paralytic, that the Lord Jesus Christ is invested with all authority, not only creational authority over demons and diseases, but judicial authority, that he alone has the right to forgive us our sin. Now we move into a second encounter. It's with a publican. It begins in verse 13. Again, I want you to notice two things. The first is this, based on verses 13 and 14, Christ calls the publican. What is a publican? It's a tax collector. You see this in verse 14. A man named Levi. We know him better as it's Matthew, one of the disciples. Matthew, Levi is the same, same individual in Scripture. He's sitting at the tax booth. Why is he sitting at the tax booth? Because he's a tax collector. He is a publican. You read Scripture, and perhaps you've noticed this before in the New Testament. Um, tax collectors, boy, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Uh, they are, they are, I use a word here because it really, is, it really is the idea that Scripture wants to engender in us. They are scum. They are scum as far as society is concerned, these tax collectors. Why? Why are they equated with sin? Why, why have they become the, the poster boy of sinners, publicans, tax collectors? Why? The first is national. These men are Jews. Collecting taxes for whom? Rome. Rome is an occupying force. 
You see, the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, is not independent. This is not a free country, Israel. This is not a free society. This is a society, you think of some of those countries during World War II under Nazi Germany. It's the same idea here. This is a country living under the control, the domination of an occupying force. These men are countrymen, Jews, who are daring to collect taxes for that occupying force, money that is not being used for the infrastructure in Israel, but is being sent back to Rome to support its wars and the expansion of its empire and its own infrastructure. They are, in a word, what? Traitors. Not only that, this wasn't something they were hired to do. They didn't apply for this like a job and send in a CV, a resume. Oh, I see you've been to college. I see you've got some accounting skills. That's fantastic. You're hired. That's not how they got this job. How did they get this job? By bidding. Here's what I can get for you. And the best bid wins the right to collect taxes. How does the tax collector make his money? By bringing in more than what he has promised to Rome. How does he bring that in? through extortion. These men, they are not only traitors, they are the worst kind of thieves. They are the dregs of society. And here sits one of them, despised as scum in the eyes of his countrymen, Levi, Matthew, sitting at a table, trying to pay up folks. And the Lord Jesus walks by. Is this the first encounter between them? Seems to give us this impression. Christ fixes his gaze on Matthew just above the heads of other people and utters a command, follow me. And there is on Matthew's part what? Unconditional obedience. You know what we see there? It's known as the call. Just as Christ has authority to forgive us our sins, Christ alone has the authority to call us out of our sins. We use that word call in numerous ways, right? When we, when we have children, we, we call them something. We name them something. That's, that's not what, really what we're talking about. Uh, when we use our cell phones or landlines or whatever to call other people, we phone other people. It's obviously not what we're talking about here. At times we use the word call to, to, in reference to yell. We're on the ball field. We're playing a game, and we yell to our teammate or call to our teammate. That's not what's going on here. At times, we use that word call to summon. And so when I was in grade two, I, uh, I got uh, summoned to the principal's office. It happened only once. It was a misunderstanding. I marched in there and cleared it up. But he summoned me to the principal's office. That's not what's going on here. To call is to utter a command. It is a command which evokes unconditional obedience, a response. It is to draw. And that's what we see here happening. We have this man who is a sinner by definition. Everyone knows it. He knows it. And the Lord Jesus, who is invested with all authority, fixes his gaze on him, utters a very simple command. You there, follow me. In Scripture, there are two calls. There is what theologians call, firstly, the general call. It is a call. It is an invitation that goes out to everyone. You're hearing a general call right now at this very moment, whether you realize it or not. This is an invitation. It it, it is a call to all men. It is given to all people without exception. The terms are very simple. God is holy. Judgment is coming. We are sinful. Christ has died for sinners. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is a general call. It goes out. It is an invitation. But there is secondly in Scripture something which theologians call the effectual call. It's not merely the proclamation of the word heard with the ear. No, it is the application of the word by the Spirit heard with the soul. You see, something changes, right, in Matthew. This isn't a mere invitation. Matthew, I want you to consider following me. You weigh it, pros and cons, and then get back to me. No, this is an effectual command. You there. I am fixing my gaze on you. You follow me. And Matthew has little choice in the matter. As the Spirit of God grips him and he responds and he answers that call. You see, the Lord Jesus invested with authority not only to forgive us our sins, but to call us out of our sin. And the second thing I want you to notice in here is this. Christ again confronts the scribes. Just as he did in the incident with the paralytic, now again he confronts the scribes in this incident with the publican 
again, they're present. They're just like uh, drool on a baby. They're just following him around everywhere he goes. It's just always there. There they are, almost like vermin, just following him around. And they've they're always got questions. They've always got accusations. They're always raising, but if, but, what? All of these sorts of things, objecting. And here they now see the Lord Jesus following Matthew. Matthew gets together some of his friends, tax collectors, sinners, the dregs of society. They have a little dinner, a little party, and the Lord Jesus attends. Well, the scribes, they're outside. They want nothing to do with it. I mean, the tax collectors, they're unclean. They can't be lawyers. They can't be judges. They can't even give testimony in the court of law. They can't worship in the temple. These men are they're, they're, they're castaways. They've been cast out, segregated from all decent society. They want nothing to do with them. And yet there's the Lord Jesus in their midst dining with them. And so the scribes come to his disciples and say, what's with this? Why does he sup with those, partake of a meal with those who are unclean? Why does he have anything to do with publicans, sinners? And the Lord Jesus knows precisely what's going on. He hears their question, their objection. And look at his response beginning in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, this is profound, those who are well, have no need of a physician. You get that? Feeling pretty good today? You're not going to make an appointment with a doctor, right? Makes sense. You wake up tomorrow feeling really bad. What do you do? You pick up the phone and you make an appointment with a doctor. It is only the sick who call for the physician. And now Christ moves from the realm of the physical to the spiritual. And he says the same is true in the realm of the spiritual. Here's the thing. We are all sick spiritually, but only some of us perceive it. We're all in the same position. We're all in the same kettle, so to speak. We're all marked with the same stripe. We're all depraved by nature. We're all sinners by nature. We're all rebels against God, hell-bound on doing our own thing and ignoring God. That is who we are, all of us. But only some of us realize it. Those who realize it, what do they do? They look for help. They call for a physician, the great physician of souls. The Lord Jesus did not come to call the righteous. Who's righteous? No one's righteous. What does he mean? The self-righteous. The self-righteous, he can't do anything for them because they don't think they need anything. He has come to call sinners. He has come to call those who are weighed down by the burden of their sin. He has come to call those who are weighed down with a guilty conscience. He has come to call those who understand that they've never done anything good in God's sight and that God would be perfectly just to condemn them right now. He owes us nothing. Knowing that, they look for a physician. Knowing that, they look for a divine healer. Knowing that, they look for the great physician of souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. For many of us, And this is a problem, a big problem for many, many today. Our sins are nothing but notions. I'll just pause there and let you think over that one. Our sins are nothing but notions. A mental concept, a mental category. Yeah, I know that's bad. It's a sin. We never feel it. And because we never feel it, We do not hate our sin as we should, nor do we esteem Christ as we should. Uh, The greatest conviction for sin produces the greatest appreciation for Christ. No conviction for sin produces what? No appreciation for Christ. I have not come to call the righteous. I can't do anything for them. They don't know they're sick. They are sick. They're dying. They refuse to acknowledge it. I can't do anything for them. I have come to call sinners, those weighed down by the burden of their sin. Years ago, I think it was 1999, Allison and I were traveling, and we left our apartment for a couple of weeks, and I turned off the electricity before we did, and I neglected to empty the freezer. And the freezer was full of chicken and sausage and beef and pork. You know where I'm going with this. July, hottest month of the year, hot and humid, no electricity. Two weeks later, came back, put the key in the lock, opened the door, nearly fell to my knees. Tears coming out of my eyes. 
the worst smell I have ever encountered in my life. It was absolutely repugnant. Oh, friend, this isn't going to do anything for your self-esteem. That's us in God's sight because of our sin. There is a repugnancy. When we get it, when we get it, when sin is bitter, oh, friend, that is when Christ becomes sweet. Right? When sin is bitter, that is when Christ becomes sweet. Because in Christ we find forgiveness of our sins. In Christ, God sees us not as we are, but as we are in his beloved. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When we have repented of our sin, closed with Christ by faith, and become one with him. God casts our sin from his sight, and he now sees us standing in the perfect righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is his dearly beloved. Oh, how we should be astirred with an appreciation of what Christ suffered at Calvary's cross. He became sin for us, and he experienced the deepest impressions of God's wrath upon his soul for us. How we should be heightened in our appreciation of why he suffered like that. It was to redeem us from our sin. We used to sing a hymn years ago as a boy, uh, one of my favorites, and it just came to mind this past week. Here's a stanza from it. And with this we'll conclude. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, this my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Bow with me as we pray to our great God above. Father, your word is a living and active sword, piercing to the soul, Revealing the thoughts and desires of our hearts. Nothing is hidden from your sight. Our hearts are exposed to you, to whom we must give an account. And so with that reality before us, we pray that your spirit might make your word effectual. Humbling sinners, imparting life, strengthening faith, exalting Christ, in whose name we ask it. Amen.